0: Why do you believe? I think that's a very important question. It's an important question that the New Testament is ultimately often asking in in an implied way. Um, If you've grown up in the Peas, you'd probably answer the question, well, because the Bible says so. Or you might say family I grew up and so that's what they always taught me that's what I've always done and so that's why I believe and the introduction to the book of Acts really begins by establishing why a person is supposed to believe what is the basis for true faith that God is looking for And what I'm going to hopefully show you is that as this lesson goes on, God's answer is not, I don't want you to believe because the Bible says so, but hold that in your mind and we'll get there because he goes a different direction in what he wants us to see. If you have your Bibles, you can look at Acts chapter one, Acts chapter one is where we're going to be this morning. In Acts chapter 1, it says there, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. I think this is an interesting beginning that you have this author saying, in the first book, and you stop and go, what's the first book? first book, what are we talking about? But the Gospel of Luke in those first four verses sets up as that Gospel writes to Theophilus. And now you have the same author here, Luke, saying, in that first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I want you to take a moment to think about the word began. It is interesting that Luke does not say, in the first account, I wrote to you everything about the life of Jesus, what he did and taught. I wrote to you everything about his life. He doesn't say that. He could have easily said that. But instead, he says, I've written to you about what Jesus began to do and teach, which gives us a very important lens for the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the continuation of the teachings and actions of Jesus. The gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is I'm going to write to you now what else Jesus was doing and teaching. That was just the start point. And the reason why that's important is I think sometimes the limbs that we can have are according the book of Acts as, well, the book of Acts is really all about the apostles. Although, if you think about that for a minute, you kind of only really read about two. The attention's really on Peter and Paul and not about what did Thomas do and what did Matthias do and we don't know. It's not really about them. And sometimes the book of Acts is well, it's about all the journeys. Let's trace all the journeys everywhere and we'll memorize all the cities and draw it on a bunch of maps. And that's not what Luke says either. What I want us to see is when we read the book of Acts, in essence, you want to read it as if you were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach. And I think that as you come into this book and we recognize that this is continuing a picture of Jesus and his actions, Jesus and his teachings, a continuation of his work. Then the question that comes up throughout the book and something that we're going to put forward again and again as we study is what will you do with Jesus? And how will you go forward with him? And what is your place in God's kingdom? That is ultimately where this all goes. Since the gospels end with the resurrection of Jesus, the big looming question is, what now? What happens now? What happens next? Now that Christ is gone, what does that mean for His people? And what is their place in God's kingdom? We are immediately told in Acts chapter 1, it says there that this is first book it dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about The kingdom of God. I think one of the lines here that is very important to notice. Is it says that Jesus presented himself alive to them. After his suffering. After his death. With these many proofs. Appearing to them during the 40 days. Notice what is being told to us is that sometimes we can think that Jesus just kind of appeared one time and that was it. You read the end of the Gospel accounts. It sounds like there's maybe one or two appearances, but notice as Luke continues the story, Luke says, no, no, for 40 days Jesus appeared with many convincing proofs. And we're told a few of those things in the gospel accounts. Remember, you have Thomas saying, I'm not going to believe unless I can see the wounds and touch his hands. And Jesus offers it to him and says, Go ahead and touch me. Go ahead and see that it's me. I'm going to give you convincing evidence. I think perhaps we give Thomas a bad rap a little bit because we need that convincing evidence. See, here's my wounds. See my hands. See my side. Reach here and touch me and see. This is not just a made-up thing, but actual convincing evidence. Not only with Thomas, you might remember that John 21 records that he was even eating with his disciples. And how John begins his letter where he talks about we saw him, we touched him, we talked to him, we heard him. That's how that all begins. Why start like that? Except to show that this is Jesus who truly raised from the dead. These are convincing proofs, key evidence so that we would know that Jesus truly did raise from the dead. Now, here's why that is ultimately important. Because the point that God wants us to have, the basis of faith is always supposed to be grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. Everything about our faith, hangs on that Jesus rose from the dead. That is the central only pillar that is overwhelmingly taught by the apostles. I think it's interesting that Luke does not say, Theophilus, I want you to believe me because this is going to be in the Bible one day. Nor does he tell Theophilus, I'm inspired, so you should believe me. (laughs) And when he says, hey, Theophilus, you should listen to me because I'm writing the very words of God. I'm being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you know that no author ever says that? They never say, believe me because I'm writing the Word of God. (laughs) What they say is, believe me, Because we saw Him. Because we heard Him. Because we talked to Him. Because we saw Him eat food. Because we touched Him. That's the many convincing proofs that Jesus is presenting over a 40-day span not to one person, Not to a couple of people, not to just Peter and John, not to the 11. We're told later on over 500 people, even in one shot, in one instance. Seeing the resurrected Lord. Here is why this matters, because you may say, I can't believe such a thing. I can't believe in such a thing that Jesus rose from the dead. It is too impossible. It is too incredulous. It is too ridiculous. It can't be. How can we have somebody raising from the dead? Your faith is in a myth. Your faith is in a story. Your faith is not in something that's real. And I submit to you, that the evidence that we are being given concerning the resurrection of Jesus is the exact same evidence that is given to us for any history that we possibly believe. How do you know that there was a George Washington... I will tell you, it's made up. It was all just to get the people excited about revolution and to get away from Britain. And they needed some kind of story to rally the nation, to come together so that the colonies would fight and so that we could start this grand nation. But it was all a myth. It was all a story. You believe in a fake. You didn't see him. Why do you believe that there was a George Washington? Why do you believe it's not just a story to try to encourage America as it begins to its fledgling start? Because other people saw him and they wrote it down. People say, we were with him and he said this And he did that and he lived here and you can go see where he used to live and this is the things that he did. People wrote it down. They say, we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him, we were around him. And so we accept that. How do you know there was an Alexander the Great? How do you know that there was a Plato, a Socrates, an Aristotle? How do you know that there is any person in any bit of history before your lifetime? Because people say, we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him, we heard him, we talked with him, and here's what they said and here's what they did. And we accept that. You see, the scriptures never say, believe us because we're the scriptures. The evidence is always... We saw him. We touched him. We ate with him. We heard him. We spent time with him. Many convincing proofs over and over again. Please think as you go through the gospel account, how many of them were expecting a resurrection? Nobody. We have disciples going to the tomb to anoint the body, not looking for a resurrection. We have people thinking the disciples are crazy when they say the body's not there. When they find the body's not there, the question is, where did you move the body? And perhaps even more important than that, when you do have the apostles telling Thomas, we saw him, he says, no, you didn't. (laughs) No, you didn't. You guys are crazy. I'm not going to believe unless I see him. And Jesus goes, okay. (laughs) I'll see you too. I'll see you a week later. The point that I want you to see is how Luke begins this with Theophilus is saying we have many convincing proofs that Jesus rose from the dead and that is the basis for our faith And let me put to you that if you do not believe that Jesus lived and rose from the dead, then you cannot believe in any historical figure that you have never seen. You can't. Because the evidence is equal. The only reason you believe anybody in the past is because people say, we saw him. We heard him, we touched him, we ate with him, we saw him there, now he existed, so believe us. And we go, okay. And the same thing exists for Jesus. Person upon person saying that Jesus lived and Jesus rose from the dead. Now why this matters presses into the end of verse 3 and verses 4 and 5 about why we believe and why that matters. You will notice at the end of verse 3, it says that during these 40 days that Jesus is appearing, He is speaking to His disciples about the kingdom of God. We will come back to that in a future lesson because that's a really important statement. But for now please note that Jesus is spending His time talking about the kingdom of God. And in doing so, He says in verse 4, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, you heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So notice what's happening. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. He tells his disciples, I want you to wait for the promise of the father. And then he specifies what he means by that. You heard John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that is important because all of that falls into the context of teaching about the kingdom. And so the natural question that should arise in our minds is what is this promise of the Father that was about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that fits in the context of the kingdom of God? That's what those three verses are doing. Here's Jesus appearing alive, convincing proofs, Teaching about the kingdom. Telling them it's time for the promise of the father. Wait for it. Not many days from now. It won't then be about the baptism of John. But it will be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit. The most important thing you can do. Is go back into the prophets and look. At what was being promised. What was being promised about the father or what was the father promising concerning the Holy Spirit regarding the kingdom of God that Jesus says, I want you to wait for it because it's not many days from now. Now, if I had hours upon hours, there's a lot of prophecies about this. Peter will use one of them in Acts chapter 2. We'll save Acts chapter 2. We don't want to rip ahead on that. But we can find tons and tons of others. This morning I'll just give you three. I'd encourage you to spend time and use your devices and go back and research the Holy Spirit. Find the word Spirit in the prophecies. And you will see the same thing of what I'm going to show you with these three prophecies. Isaiah 32 is an important prophecy that connects these things together. Isaiah 32, in verse 14, it says, For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower become dens forever, a joy for wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. Let me stop and give you context. This is a condemnation that Isaiah is giving to the nation of Israel. Judgment is coming against you. And the judgment is going to be so severe that the palace... Nobody's going to be there anymore. It's forsaken. The populous city. Imagine big cities. God. Nobody's going to live there anymore. The watchtower. Animals are going to live there. You just see the emptiness, the desertion. The destruction is being implied in these images about this watchtower and these hills and this land and these cities and these palaces. They're going to be the joy of donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Imagine if you had a prophecy that said West Palm Beach is going to be a pasture for flocks. Well, that's not good. That's really bad. That is some serious destruction. If you say a city is going to be a place where animals are living now until the spirits poured out from on high. Notice there's a time marker being given with this. It's going to be judgment. It's going to be empty. It's going to be a wasteland. It's going to be destruction until the spirits poured out. Well, what's going to happen when the spirits poured out? The wilderness will become a fruitful field. Notice the reversal. The fruitful field will be deemed a forest and justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of the righteous of, of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness quiet and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Here's what I want you to see. Judgment, when the Spirit comes, what will happen? Reversal. From emptiness and wilderness and animals eating and living there. Fruitful field. Justice, righteousness, peace. Everything's going to be changed. That's what Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah 44 verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, another name for Israel. I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on dry ground. Notice dry ground, thirsty land. What's God going to do? Pour water on it. God's blessings. Notice what's tied with that. I will pour out same imagery my spirit upon your offspring my blessing on your descendants notice that the parallelism offspring connects to descendants pour out my spirit connects to my blessings reversal is coming God is going to reverse the fortunes of His people, and the dry ground is now going to be streams of water poured on it. No longer blessings from the past. Now God will give blessings. Time from judgment to now a time of hope, and so you see the outcome. They will spring up like among the grass, like willows by by the flowing streams. This one will say, "I am the Lord's." Notice the reversal. Now you will belong to God. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. I want you to see what's going to happen when the Spirit comes. People will belong to God again. People will have a relationship with God. Blessings are coming to the people, and they will enjoy relationship again when the Spirit comes. One more could do a lot, but one more. Ezekiel 39, 25, thus says the Lord God, I will re- now restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the house of Israel. Important picture. Notice reversal, restoring fortunes. You were judged. You were cast off. You were cut off. I'm going to restore. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to have mercy on Israel and I'll be jealous For my holy name, they shall forget their shame and all their treachery that they practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid when I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them I have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord their God. Because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them again into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them. When? When I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. All three prophecies... And the rest of them, you can go look and they'll say the exact same thing. All promise restoration and reversal. All of them are saying, when this event happens, God is coming to His people. What God was promising throughout those prophecies was, yes, I am going to judge you. You are taken off the land. You are going to end exile. But when the Spirit comes... I'm going to restore you to myself. You're going to be my people again. And I'm going to restore my kingdom. And I'm going to bring blessings. And it's interesting throughout the New Testament, here's a little side point. Every time you read about the Holy Spirit, these promises, it's shorthand for saying God's reversing fortunes and restoring people. I'm going to reverse your fortunes. I'm going to flip things over for you. I'm going to change things so that now I will be able to bless you. Now let's put all of this together as we wrap up the lesson this morning. Because we started the lesson by asking, why do you believe? Why do you believe? And these first five verses set forward... A very important answer for why we believe and what is to be the result ultimately of that belief. Back here in in Acts chapter 1, it says there in verse 4 to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Why do you believe? Listen to what John was running around saying, because John said the same thing as Jesus. John, here are, all these people are coming to John. Remember, he's out there baptizing. You've got people upon people, crowds, flocking to him and thronging him. The people were in expectation. They were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them all. Here's John's answer to all of Israel. Everybody. Here's here's John teach you. Say, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Notice. John's saying the same thing that Jesus comes along and goes, that's about to happen, not many days from now. Wait for the promise of the Father. As you've heard, as I've been teaching you, and this is exactly what John himself said. John said, I baptize with water, but when Him, the Christ comes, I'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. I'll baptize with fire. Now, what does that mean? Never stop reading. Next line. His winnowing fork is in his hand. So here's the one who's mightier than I coming. I can't even bend down to loosen the laces on his shoes. I'm unworthy of him. But here's what he's going to do. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to clear the threshing floor. And what's he doing? Gathering wheat into the barn. And the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Gathering wheat into the barn. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Chaff, burn with unquenchable fire. Baptism of fire. Here's John explaining it. Here's how it's all going to go down. Here's how it's all going to play out. The work of Jesus that he was continuing to do. That's what the book of Acts opens. I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach, and is continuing to do was to separate those who belong to him and those who don't. He came to make division, he even said. I'm dividing who belongs to me and who does not belong to me. And the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation point of that because you must decide what you will do with that. We spent quite a bit of time at the start of the lesson saying, the reason you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead is the same reason you can believe in, pick your historical figure. Because people said it, they saw it, they, they heard Him. That It was all convincing proofs. And now this book already opens with a challenge. Why do you believe? Because you are put to the forefront to determine what's it going to be with Jesus. Because you have one of two choices. There's not a third, there's not a fourth, there's not a fifth. Choice one. You can be baptized by fire. That's what was being done. Is Jesus is coming and saying, you can belong to me. I've come to gather those who are mine. I'm dividing the wheat and the chaff. And with the resurrection of Jesus means you can decide to not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It is too crazy. It's too amazing. It's nuts. It's impossible. You can believe that he did not live, that he did not die, that he did not raise, that you do not need to submit your life to him, that he is just a good story to get people to do better and to treat people nicely. He's just kind of one of those mythical figures. And if we would just kind of listen to some of those, you know, do unto others as you'd have to do unto you, we'd all be in a better place and all be a better world. But he's not real. And if you choose that path, To not believe that he really rose from the dead and that he is truly Lord and Savior. Unquenchable fire is the outcome. By contrast, you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, don't plug in all the strange stuff that people say. What does that mean? You believe that Jesus is who He said He is. You believe in the eyewitness testimony of people who wrote it down for us and that He did what He came to do and we believe that He rose from the dead. You believe that and you submit your life to Him. And if you choose that path, that here we have Him reconciling you to Himself. Or if I can use what we read in Luke 3. He's gathering you into the barn. So that you can enjoy a relationship with Him. Jesus is stepping on the scene here as the book of Acts opens. And He's saying, everything that God had promised, wait for it, not many days from now. Because I'm going to restore things. The whole reason Jesus came was to bring people to Himself to reconcile people to him. And you can see why then the book of Acts would be the continuing work of Jesus then. Because the Gospels record the action that was necessary and the book of Acts records how he's going to get people to be reconciled to him. You have a choice. Be baptized by fire. Which means there's a judgment coming. And you're separated like chaff or be baptized in the Holy Spirit which means belong to Him submit to Him and enjoy the blessings reconciliation and restoration with God as an aside in a month for the Wednesday night class I'm going to do the real gory details of about the Holy Spirit and these texts and go through all that. But for Sunday mornings, we'll stay on the surface and follow this picture of what God was promising. Because the promise was of hope to us that we could be His children yet again through what He accomplished for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is amazing to see, Lord, Lord, your amazing power you raised from the dead you conquered death and that the reason you conquered death lord is not because you could say look how powerful i am but because you loved us lord you rose from the dead and conquered death so that we would not have to fear death anymore no longer we would be separated from you but that we could be your children Lord, we understand that we should be the chaff that is cast into the fire. We are full of sins. We are laden with sins, multiplying sins upon ourselves. We are deserving of judgment. We are deserving of being cast aside. Thank you, Lord, for making promises. That you would be merciful and that you would restore our condition, that you would reverse our fortunes, that you would change the trajectory of where we ought to spend our eternity, and that you fulfilled your promise through your Son. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you that we are able to enjoy that restoration, enjoy the reversal. And enjoy reconciliation with you. Oh Lord how you love us. Lord may we see what we have looked at this morning. To not only be a foundation of faith. But may it convince us to turn away from sin. And to serve you as the risen Lord. In Jesus name. Amen.